1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: So Dr. David Niles is a scientist and entrepreneur. He spent most of his career building technologies that recognize and change RNA in human cells. This is different from the typical calls that we host because a lot of them are on DNA editing. So today we're gonna focus on RNA, which is exciting. David did some graduate work at UC San Diego, which was focused on polymeric and CRISPR-based systems that target RNA specifically. This work formed the basis of the publications and a company that he co-founded called Lucano Bio. you've all heard of it. And David also served as chief technology Officer, member there at Lucana Bio for four years. He led the research there in the preclinical team. Some of many accomplishments include repurposing CRISPR Cas nine to target RNA in human cells, reducing this technology into a potential treatment for Huntington's disease, inherited ALS, and mitonic dystrophy, and overseeing preclinical studies of this technology to treat mitonic dystrophy and. Co funding two biotech companies that build RNA targeting therapeutics. So, obviously, a lot to discuss. So, thanks for joining us, and sorry for any delays for anyone on on some of the sort of more technical difficulties.
0: Yes, that was definitely my fault. This is my first Twitter Spaces experience, so sorry everybody for the delay. But thank you for the kind intro, Allie, and thanks for having me. That was that was really generous.
2: Of course, now all well deserved, and no worries about Twitter Spaces. We're uh, we're all kind of learning as as we go. But I think I think these are really valuable because people can just kind of jump on and and hear from an expert like yourself. So I think there's a lot of value to, to what we're doing. So thanks for joining. And I guess let's start it with I like to call all the way back, but it feels like with gene editing, all the way back is like last year. But talking about kind of zinc fingers, talons, and CRISPRs, and so if you look at the data, we recently were looking at kind of publications, and it's a pretty crazy graph if you think about where publications went. From we did it from 2005 to 2020, and you can see on the graph, you know, if you look at 2005 till about like 2013, zinc finger, talons, and CRISPR are all kind of on this even trajectory, and then after 2013, you can just see CRISPR kind of take off. And if you look at it from a graph perspective, and you look at trials, you see kind of a similar situation. There's still, you know, there still are definitely some finger and talent trials, but CRISPR seems to really take off in the trial sphere, especially kind of 2019, 2020, and of course, 2021. So I'm curious if we can kind of set the stage, maybe as a first question, thinking about all these different technologies that we have Why did CRISPR kind of take off from zinc finger and talons in such a sort of material way?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's a great place to start. So the major distinction between CRISPR and other approaches for editing DNA is really about ease of use and flexibility. In the world of biology, previously it took decades to sequence a genetic sequence and then it got faster pretty quickly, but the world of genome editing, altering DNA sequences specifically, really up until recently was sort of a tiny little cottage industry that was the subject of PhD theses that took years but CRISPR made it accessible to all sorts of personalities and skill levels in the world of biochemistry. And it made it possible to happen, to generate specific edits in DNA really quick. So on the scale of days or or, at the very least weeks versus years. So ease of use is really important. There's other idiosyncrasies that distinguish these two approaches, but the kind of the explosion of interest is largely a factor of the fact that lots of people can just pick this up and make use of it. I think when you consider what should be done with these systems in terms of human therapeutics, that's where the distinctions start to get to get pretty interesting because there's a variety of different features that each of these genome editing approaches have, whether it's immunogenicity or flexibility, or even the, sh- the sheer amount of modifications that each approach can hypothetically make that really distinguish which indications are the best choice for each respective technology.
2: So I think a great place to, to move on from that is thinking about, so we talk about DNA all the time, right? DNA editing, CRISPR-Cas enzymes, different enzymes, the gut RNA is for base editing reverse transcript is for prime editing we kind of talk about that and all the analogies that go along with it i think i recently tweeted like that article where they talked about the different analogies the top 10 ones which was really funny and recently this weekend we were talking about, and David, we talked about this over the weekend too, like different analogies that we could use, like football analogy for uh, CRISPR-Cas enzymes. And so we talk about that a lot and how we can make that more relatable, but I don't think we talk about RNA editing enough. And so maybe we can just start, David, with, you know, can you tell us sort of what is the difference between DNA and RNA editing? And maybe if you want, you know, if you have any fun analogies, because that seems to be something that people respond to well. Uh, if you've thought about it, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. But if you have any sure. sort of fun analogies, that'd be, that'd be cool to hear too.
0: Yeah, I, think, I like the one you tweeted this weekend about CRISPR proteins and, and guide RNAs. Like the guide RNA is sort of the, the quarterback on the field. And then I'm kind of struggling whether the CRISPR protein is the lineman or whether, yeah, I think that makes sense. Sort of it's kind of the, it's, it's the effector protein that gets the job done and, the, and it, does, it goes where the guide RNA points it sort of. So I like that angle a lot. And I think CRISPR is very much a modular type of system. And if you consider how it evolved, you can see how different modules sort of ended up being stuck together over the course of billions of years of evolution with lots of pressure on bacteria from viruses. So the modules that sort of converged definitely could be distinguished in terms of activity and therefore this kind of modular analogy of different players on a field really, really appeals to me. But I think, so segueing to RNA, I think RNA is a really exciting molecule for a variety of reasons. And in 2009, when I started my PhD, the goal for me really was to take a step back and think we have all this transcriptomic information so we have all these different descriptions of the rna content of different cells how do we make use of this how do we turn this into a technological solution for for human problems if you look at the dna content of human cells largely all of our cells have the same dna with with a couple occasional exceptions like when it comes to t cell receptors or telomeres but again pretty much dna is the same throughout your body whereas rna is distinct among different cell types among different tissues among healthy versus disease cells from moment to moment, whether you're sleeping or whether you're awake at different times in your circadian rhythm, the RNA content of your cells are widely different. And so you can use this information for a variety of different reasons from recognizing a healthy versus disease cell versus, or or even um, targeting cells specifically that uh, has has, uh, diseased RNA. So you can imagine if you have an assist that targets RNA rather than DNA, hypothetically, it could act only in the cells where the treatment needs to occur. And this is really important when you consider clinical development of nucleic acid editing systems because if there's expression and activity outside of the tissue where you want it you can have off-target effects toxicities which could be difficult to predict and cause major issues down the road so so i think this is something that was a major motivating factor for myself and also for countless other scientists in this world of, of rna and a lot of scientists kind of straddle the worlds of dna and rna but the reason the rna sort of lags dna in terms of technology development. It's just more difficult to work with, it's more fragile. The human body is actually packed with enzymes as an antiviral defense that cleave RNA. So just the simple act of purifying and working with RNA as a human being who's coded in RNA-destroying enzymes is just a little more technically difficult. So it took a bit longer for us to figure out how to work with RNA, how to sequence it, and also just collect big data sets that describe to us what the RNA profiles of cells are and therefore what the cells are up to. When I look forward towards the future of DNA versus RNA, targeting, I think it's also worth looking way back. At some point, and this is a very difficult hypothesis to to prove, there's a lot of people who like the idea that the world was at one point entirely of RNA and in that life was composed of RNA. Rather than having DNA as a storage of genetic information, RNA conducted that function. This is appealing for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that RNA can do lots of things. It can be catalytic like a protein, it can promote chemical reactions, it can store genetic information like I mentioned. These are critical functions in life and in the earliest stages of the evolution of life, it's appealing to think that this kind of multi-purpose molecule, um, all of its activities were being used to make life possible. And indeed, if you look at our cells today and consider what RNA does in our cells, it transfers information, it promotes catalysis, it's involved in fundamental processes in DNA replication, in uh, protein production, ad nauseum. There's, it's, really, it's really got its hands on most of our important homeostatic you know, moment-to-moment biological processes. So for technologists, such as myself, and also for anyone excited about the future, RNA editing and genome editing, nucleic acid editing in general, RNA, the world of RNA, provides a wealth of different technologies, a wealth of different biological phenomena, which can be repurposed into technology. And this is something that I'm really excited about, something I've worked on in the past couple of years and something I hope to continue working on. And I think a lot of it is still sort of a, a curiosity, but if, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the uptick in the world of gene therapy and gene editing, the amount of interest, the amount of clinical trials that are being started that you you mentioned earlier really creates, I think, I'm excited about the trajectory of RNA uh, and RNA technology similarly. So we'll see how things go. But I think maybe that's a good moment to pause for a moment.
2: Yeah, no, that's all really good context and, and super helpful. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think not everyone understands is that there are different approaches to RNA editing, and so you know, with I mean, similarly with DNA editing, you know, we have the Cas9 approach. Then we have many different enzymes we can use, and then we have you know different guide RNAs we can use, and then you know we have increased functionality that we can add to a Cas9 or a different protein. There's been new enzymes, but you know we can now add a deaminase for base editing or a reverse transcriptase for prime editing, and I'm sure there'll be many, many new and improved functionalities, you know, in a short amount of time. But for RNA editing, we know about ADAR, which maybe not everyone knows on the line, so maybe we can explain what ADAR is. But there are different approaches that people are taking in terms of, you know, maybe you can use ADAR. I've heard the approach of, you know, using ADAR just with a guide RNA, so no other kind of mechanisms needed there, which I think is pretty interesting because, you know, the more machinery, right, the more potential for things. Go wrong, but of course, the more machinery, the more functionality. So maybe it's a, a kind of a dichotomy there. But I'd be curious to hear sort of your thoughts on approaches that use maybe just ADR with the guide RNA versus an approach where you're using a, a CRISPR enzyme. And I don't actually know this, but are there approaches that use you know other enzymes or other proteins other than just the CRISPR ones that we know about? Yes,
0: yeah, super super exciting area. So as you mentioned, there are ways to edit RNA by only delivering a nucleic acid to a human cell. So you can deliver a short oligonucleotide, which could be chemically modified or not, or you could deliver an RNA that will recognize another RNA present in the cell and then induce an editing event. And the way it does this is sort of looping back into this RNA processing phenomenon I mentioned earlier. So all the different ways that RNA is altered in cells and and, then catalytic, but also a subject of catalysis. There are enzymes present in the cell, for instance, ADAR, that will generate specific edits. And basically the system that you just mentioned yeah, to, to just summarize, we'll recruit this ADR enzyme to a specific site in an RNA and then generate a mutation. So yeah, the elegance of this as an engineer, I think is like, really cool. Because with a very simple system, just a short nucleic acid, basically, we can call it guide RNA, although we don't want to confuse that with a CRISPR guide RNA. You can yeah generate an edit in a manner that just repurposes, hijacks components that are already present in the cell. So that's that's super cool. In terms of its elegance, it's also super cool because of immunogenicity. So you mentioned CRISPR proteins, and there are ways to generate in RNA using CRISPR proteins and other engineered RNA-binding proteins for that matter. But the issue is that whenever you're delivering uh, an enzyme to cells that is not present in the cells before or that the human immune system uh, has experienced otherwise in the context of an infection, you'll have an immune response to this protein. So CRISPR proteins are bacteria derived. And so a more elegant solution is to just avoid the use of the protein and just use this little engineered guide RNA. So there's a company called Shape that's working on this. And actually one of the co-founders of that company was on my thesis committee, Prashant Mali. So it's really exciting work that we've been paying attention to closely. And ARX, and I think there's another, another private company called Coro that's doing something similar based on what they've revealed publicly, at least. So super exciting area. And the issue of our highly paranoid immune system, pretty much anything it hasn't seen before is potentially a threat, is, is really the issue that this type of approach dodges. That said, this type of editing approach is sort of limited in terms of the mutations you can address. So only G to A mutations can be reversed using this type of approach. And it's probably context-dependent to some degree as well. So only certain target sites are probably addressable. So way, it's a very, very narrow range of diseases that can be addressed with this type of approach. But by addressing these safety issues inherently, I think this type of approach and similar approaches are personally, to I think, really, really exciting
2: right now. But just to give some context, right, for the A to G, wouldn't like alpha-1 antitrypsin be an example of an A to G change? And so you can imagine that if you could do that A change, what a difference that would make. Because if you compare it to like an siRNA therapeutic, those therapeutics, to my knowledge, can only work if you are looking at the liver. Whereas this would technically work for both liver and lung disease, right?
0: But I think the issue of delivery is uniformly tricky. And you know, liver and lung are more targetable than most human tissues, just because the liver tends to accumulate pretty much anything that's injected systemically. And the lungs are relatively accessible, although still, still pretty tricky, but at least they're exposed to the external environments more than other tissues are. But it's funny because I mentioned sort of the limited range of mutations that can be addressed, but there are you know, many devastating diseases and many people who are, who are really profoundly suffering due to conditions that can be addressed using these technologies. So I don't mean to uh, denigrate the the potential here to reduce human suffering, but there are many other mutations that I think in the fullness of time will also have technologies uh, that that can address them. And so I think if you compare that to the world of DNA, you can hypothetically address any mutation using HDR, homology-directed repair, and a CRISPR protein. But the issue then is how do you translate this into human therapeutic due to all sorts of idiosyncrasies of this, this approach. So I think CRISPR has this sort of problem of really incredible breadth of potential, but difficulty in introduction to clinical practice when it comes to genome editing. And I think the world of RNA um, can kind of inherently dodge some of these issues, but time really will tell whether these issues truly really can be avoided. So we're still pretty early in this field.
2: Yeah. And point well taken, David, that, you know, we, we know that, you know, we look at, you know, large TAMs, which now means something in the scientific world, actually. So a TAM versus a PAM, but I mean it from the, the financial terms. So we know that, that we look for, you know, these indications that have these, you know, large total addressable markets. But of course, we always, you know, want, want to ensure that patients who are most at need also have, you know, therapeutic benefits, as you mentioned. And one thing you brought up, which is HDR or homology-directed repair, I'm always curious because I hear about that and I read the literature and I think about sort of HDR versus end-joining for CRISPR. And it seems to me that HDR is not as efficient as a system as compared to end-joining. So I'm just curious if you had any thoughts there. Sorry, I know I'm taking you totally off topic, but um, whenever I hear HDR, I'm like, "Mm, that's interesting. So not sure if you had any thoughts to to add here.
0: Happy to get into it. And I mean, to take a really brief step back before I get into that, I think you know, kind of the idiosyncrasies of each indication and, and kind of the knowledge that you and your team bring to specific technologies and therefore determining whether a specific use case is the right use case, that's really what's needed right now to figure out among the alphabet soup of CRISPR proteins available right now how do you match like an indication to to a technology? So like really getting to these like technological details is absolutely the right way to do it. So I have a lot of respect for bringing this to the fore. So when it comes to HDR and HEJ, right, NHEJ tends to happen everywhere in our cells. So that's uh, non-homologous end joining. And this is a process that is something that cells must continuously undergo because our cells are being insulted continuously with all sorts of environmental crud, whether it's Radiation or toxic DNA damaging molecules or what have you. So, our cells must continuously repair these double strands. And this is a process that can be error prone. It's a process that may result in insertion of mutations at the double strand break site in human DNA, but that can be utilized technologically. So, kind of the most crude way to use CRISPR is to generate the double strand break at a specific site and then use NHEJ or allow NHEJ to occur and then the repair events will frequently result in a mutation that can inactivate the target gene. So if there's a gene that's causing problems, you can inactivate it fairly effectively using NHEJ. That said, showing up and uh, you know kicking over the, the table is not necessarily the best way to address human disease, so to speak. Uh, HDR is distinct in that the cell will sort of take a step back and then consider the specification, let's say, of this particular site in the genome. And then use that as a basis to make a decision as to how to conduct the repair so rather than showing up and just sort of sticking the two, gluing the two ends of dna together willy-nilly as for nhej uh, hdr homology directed repair rather the cell will consider a template or sort of a plan and then make pair based on that plan so typically um, a cell will look at its other chromosome. so most of the chromosomes come in pairs unless you're a man and if you so the cell will consider the other chromosome and then figure out how to make the repair so that it matches the other chromosome but you can make this neat technological sort of hack and deliver to the cell uh, a piece of DNA that sort of mimics the other chromosome but has some choice changes. And these choice changes can be you know, repairing mutations that might be present on one or both chromosomes. They can be introducing technologically interesting sequences, like, for instance, a CAR, for a CAR T cell. So you can create you know, anti-cancer cell therapy. There's lots of different things you can do here. So the efficiency difference, I think, is important to consider that you mentioned between NHEJ and HDR, but particularly because their activities are distinct among different cell types. So HDR is typically only active in dividing cells, whereas NHEJ, as I mentioned, is active everywhere. So it can be tough to make any HDR work in the specific cell type that you're trying to treat, especially if it's a non-dividing cell. So you might end up with sort of like a mosaic of activity in different tissues, or you might not end up with sufficient activity in the tissue you're trying to treat. So it's important to consider this sort of distinction when you're trying to figure out if this technology is fit for this specific disease.
2: Right. Yeah, I think the HDR versus end joining is a is a complicated question that we could do hours just on end joining versus HDR, but uh, we'll leave it there. But I think that's a really you provided some really great context there. But let's try and break this down even further because I know these concepts can be really really dense for a lot of people. So you know when we think about DNA or RNA editing, we think about typically that you have the guide RNA, which as you mentioned is different for DNA and RNA editing, and then you think about having some type of enzyme. You know, typically for RNA editing, it could be, uh, you know, the R-Cast9, it could be 13D. It could be, as Jonathan Gutenberg and Amara Badiah recently discovered, Cas7 through 11. Um, so many options there. But as we also mentioned, there could be sort of this repurposing of, of enzymes using like an ADAR. And then you think about, you know, encapsulating all of that into some kind of vector, maybe an AAV, a VLP, or an LMP. And, you know, those we've seen from DNA editing. And so I think it would be helpful maybe if we kind of contextualize maybe you know, the rest of the conversation, and then we can get into a bunch of other things after. So I guess the immediate. conversation into sort of those categories so that maybe we can just talk about each one and kind of try to break it down so that it's simple to, you know, whoever's on the line. I don't know whether you guys are investors or have some science background. I should probably ask that at some point as a Twitter question to get more context around what's interesting, but this is all really interesting to me. So selfishly, this is great, but um, so maybe we can start with kind of thinking about, and as we mentioned, right, so for ADAR, it is possible to just have a guide RNA, but if you're using an enzyme, you would need the guide RNA, the enzyme and the vector. So maybe let's start with, you know, how do we contextualize each of these parts that are needed and the different options that maybe come along with them?
0: Yes, there's a lot going on here. So I'll do my best to sort of break this into bite-sized chunks. So when you consider first all the different the soup CRISPR proteins, there's sort of the OG CRISPR Cas9, which is a relatively large protein when you consider the canon of technologically useful CRISPR proteins. But it does not really, well, it doesn't really fit in an AAV vector. So uh, the subject of some of my work during my PhD was to reduce the size of Cas9 to make it fit in an AAV vector. And therefore, based on the Dutton Lab's work, make that a useful uh, gene therapy. But anyway, there's smaller CRISPR proteins like uh, Cas14 and pretty much all of the others that are being used routinely these days that um, target DNA and fit in an adeno-associated viral vector. So the reason this is important is because AVs are the most clinically validated means to, at least with a viral approach, deliver gene editing, and genome editing enzymes to human tissue. There are other CRISPR proteins such as Cas711 and different types of Cas13 which rather than targeting DNA, these are obligate RNA targeting proteins. So they've evolved to protect bacterial cells from viral invasion by cleaving viral RNA. And these proteins have their own idiosyncrasies and their idiosyncrasies, I think most prominently, are about bystander effects. So these proteins, when they recognize the viral sequence, when they recognize the viral RNA, they will activate and start cleaving all sorts of RNAs present in the cell. So not only do they cleave the RNA target, but they can also cleave other RNAs. And this is something that, if you're a bacterial cell that's trying to protect its friends, makes a lot of sense because you'll sort of prevent the virus from propagating and, and therefore infecting the, the bacterial population, but sometimes probably at the cost of killing this individual bacterium. So when you consider what this means in human cells, there's sort of some idiosyncrasies in these different flavors and, and subtypes of these, these cast proteins, but uh, many of them demonstrate this bystander effect and many more don't. So it's important to consider. Kind of the specific off target activity of your Cas protein, especially if it's a Cas 13 protein, before we put it in a human cell. So, conveniently, many of these fit in viral vectors and they have a variety of other useful activities. So, you've mentioned kind of the components here. You have this Cas protein, you have a guide RNA. Some of these proteins, like Cas 13, for instance, have a guide processing activity wherein it's easier to target multiple genes with a single. CAS system. And the reason for that is because the guide processing phenomenon allows a single transcript to be turned into many guide RNAs. And in that manner, you can build a relatively simple gene therapy vector and simultaneously target multiple genes. So when you consider the kind of the canon of clinical development at this point, we're still working on addressing diseases that are caused by a single gene. Although in the not too distant future, I'm optimistic that many of these diseases will have been treated in a way that's satisfactory. So then we can start looking at genes that have multiple interacting mutations or multiple interacting genes that must be addressed. And that's where these sort of technologies could be really exciting. So Cas proteins with guide RNA processing activity. You mentioned that you can avoid the necessity of a Cas protein uh, in the case of some of these RNA editing based approaches, like the AR based approach that we discussed earlier. And indeed, that I think is really, really elegant and nice way to avoid both packaging capacity issues associated with adeno-associated virus, and also the immunogenicity problems—that's can be a significant issue depending on the specific tissue you're targeting and what other sort of anti-immunogenic accoutrements you're adding to your gene therapy.
2: Awesome. So I think that was a really great summary on you know the different guides and maybe enzymes. So let's think about the third component now, which is vectors. So you know a lot of attention has been placed on vectors for obvious reasons. or Particles have been talked about by many, obviously because of their COVID-19 connection. So the uh, current vaccine by Moderna, Pfizer, and others, for the mRNA-based approach at least, uses an LMP or a lipid nanoparticle to encapsulate um, mRNA when it goes into your body. So um, there are benefits to using LMPs, certainly for liver-directed therapies. You know We also have news on VLPs or virus-like you know particles that are also used as delivery vehicles and AAVs. And AAVs, as we know, uh, the F- recently met to talk about some potential issues with toxicities, and someone once put it to me like this, if you want to go to Africa right now, how are you going to get there? well, your only option is a plane. And so, when I complain about AAVs and potential toxicities, you know, this person was like, well, you know, it's the only option to get into certain places like the eye and, and the CNS or the central nervous system and some others like tissues or muscles. So, you know, it's maybe the best we have now, but obviously looking, looking at that um, toxicity is a, a real thing. So, just curious, David, if you can kind of go into a little bit more detail on some of the different vectors and kind of how you see it playing out from a toxicity or, or sort of other issue kind of framing. Right. Yes.
0: Those are the big questions that you've raised here around these different vector systems. So, so adeno-associated virus, viral-like particles and LMPs have their respective idiosyncrasies, but when it comes to, and really evidence of the FDA's recent interest and, and uh, recent conversations with, with the community about this, um, AAV is really the most validated approach. So AAVs are kind of exciting from a, from a biological standpoint, because we are infected with many different AEVs throughout our lives, and they don't appear to cause any sort of pathology. So they, they infect our tissues, but don't give us disease. And indeed, you can imagine that's a perfect base of virus to deliver a gene therapy to try to address the disease. Viral-like particles are sort of an engineering reduction of different viral particles. So the idea is to basically gut virus and use certain features of the virus to that are advantageous in terms of delivery to specific tissues or kind of rebuild a virus from the ground up and reverse engineer its activity to do what it typically does but maybe add another feature or two in terms of targetability. So it's sort of a kind of a Frankenstein viral particle, and there's many flavors of these. And then finally, lipid nanoparticles are sort of fat droplets that encapsulate different gene therapies. It could be a protein complex, it could be DNA or nucleic acid of another sort. And since fat particles kind of protect the therapy from the maybe different enzymes or the immune system, it's kind of a convenient way to shuttle the material to the right place, just like a virus shuttles its genetic material. And these are a bit tougher to work with when it comes to delivery. So for the most part, they target liver, but they can be tweaked. And there's some, some good evidence that they can go to other tissues. But when you consider the phenomenon of NSV, LNP's really nicely dodge uh, this problem. And you can imagine like the ideal uh, therapeutic, you would be able to redose it as needed, a physician would be able to Look at the label and make decision. Okay, we're going to dose this much today, and then that much next week, and you know, tweak things as necessary, and hopefully not have any uncomfortable side effects with patients. You can imagine that's just how drugs are used these days. But in the world of gene editing and gene therapy, since the materials are sometimes a little bit toxic or a little bit immunogenic, that type of reality is not quite here yet. So, LNP's could form the basis of an entirely non-immunogenic basis to our nucleic acids. But there's going to have to be some major innovations in terms of the targetability of these systems. Packaging capacity is something that also makes the future brighter for LNPs in that AAVs, since they are a naturally occurring viral particle, they have a well-defined genome, and that genome uh, is of a certain size. And these viral particles are tiny um, relative to other viruses and just in an absolute sense, pretty small so, for that reason, the amount of genetic material you can fit in these viral particles is around 4,000 DNA bases, four and a half thousand DNA bases. And uh, there's many things that we'd like to do that would require more sequence than that to address a disease. So, for instance, there's many diseases where the mutated gene is much larger than four and a half thousand bases, and therefore the replacement gene would have to go in some other vector out of the NAEV. So, I think these. Kind of idiosyncrasies mean that when you consider different diseases, each of these approaches have to be sort of against the disease and also the durability required for treatment. So how long after treatment do you need the effect to occur? Yeah, I think we could wax philosophical about this indefinitely, but... How was that for you, Alex?
2: That was, no, that was so helpful. That was a really good sort of in-depth deep dive. I, I know it's complicated, but I think, you know, as I think through these concepts, I always try to say, you know, what helps me most, a, a 3D model or a picture or you know what kind of contextualizes it the most. And I think, you know, going through it kind of piece by piece or part by part is really helpful. So I appreciate that kind of candor there. like. I think then, like, you know, the next part is kind of this increased functionality that we see with DNA editing, right? So that would be like the prime editing or the base editing. And so, you know, there isn't anything that's sort of synonymous with RNA editing, but there are different forms of RNA, right? Like micro RNA, or I think this is being talked about a lot lately, but circular RNA. And so, you know, would be curious if you can kind of, and obviously mRNA, which is obviously in the COVID vaccine. and gained a lot of uh, popularity. But just curious if you can kind of walk us through, you know, is it going to be that the type of RNA can change anything or is that going to add increased functionality at all? Right. Yeah. I think
0: when you consider the different kind of naturally occurring types of RNA, there's all this fodder for technological repurposing of these RNAs. And there's some recent work that's sort of demonstrates that. And I think there's a lot of work that's going to happen in the future that demonstrates that. But as you mentioned, there are circular RNAs and there's companies that build RNAs that um, lack ends. And since they have no ends, they can avoid some of the end recognizing enzymes that destroy RNA. And you can also imagine enzymes kind of running continuously in circle and generating um, concatomeric molecules that otherwise would be impossible to make. And there's all sorts of neat technological um, reasons to do that. There are splicing RNAs, ribosomal RNAs, uh, transfer RNAs. All these have technological uses, some of which have been realized and many of which have, have not been realized. So it's really, really exciting to consider what things might look like in the not too distant future.
2: That's good. No no stress. That's good. Yeah. It's just a lot of this kind of, I try to compare it to DNA editing and maybe, you know, they're just too different. But when I think about the increased functionality, I I start to think about, you know, these differences and, and maybe the different RNAs that we can have. But another thing I try to contextualize for myself and maybe for others is you know, what's the target market here? So when I think about CRISPR-Cas9, we are disrupting a gene. And so, you know, we know what current companies are doing there. We know that, you know, CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex and many other companies are looking to treat and hopefully cure sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. And that works really well because you're disrupting a gene to turn on another gene, namely fetal hemoglobin. And then we also know that Intellia is working in the space and, you know, they're working to, you know, basically kind of disrupt this gene, this TTR gene, and stop the production of of a particular protein called amyloid. Um, and that works really well because you're just kind of turning off that gene. And then we know, of course, Editas, which presented data uh, last week, actually, is working on sort of trying to, I guess, cure blindness by looking at people with LCA10, so a rare disease that causes blindness. And these are sort of really incredible indications and really great indications probably for Cas9. But as we know, you know, Cas9 can be limited in terms of what it can treat. So when I think about kind of market opportunities for RNA editing, which is probably more transient and less sort of curative, potentially, more of a sort of chronic therapy than maybe DNA editing, I think of kind of comparing the landscape with RNAIs, you know, or RNA interference or ASOs, antisense oligonucleotides. And so I'd be curious if you could kind of contextualize for me, what are some of the sort of advantages and maybe disadvantages of some of these different approaches when you think about RNA editing? Right, right. So
0: many of the things that you can do with
2: CRISPR, you can also do with RNA,
0: especially when you're talking about just attenuating expression of a certain gene. At the moment, if you want to generate specific mutations in RNA, that's still something that the state of the art has has yet to realize. So that's sort of a place where CRISPR will likely continue to to dominate for for the foreseeable future. There are certain, but there's really a lot of potential here, and I'm excited about how things could change in that respect. You mentioned that prime editing and base editing have sort of lack analogies in the world of of RNA targeting tech, and indeed um, appears to be the case, for now at least. So just to recap, these base and prime editing approaches involve generating single-base transversions in DNA, or alternatively, in the the case of prime editing, to insert sequences into DNA. And this is something that I think is really, really exciting and really elegant. The CRISPR protein and its guide RNA inherently carry genetic information. And the idea of targeting a certain locus in the genome and then finding a way to insert that information, that's precisely what prime editing does. So it's a really neat way to kind of leverage and kind of an idiosyncrasy of the concept of a protein that carries a nucleic acid to DNA and use that as a way to address disease. So I think, yeah, so looking forward, I'm, I'm curious to see how the, how CRISPR-based approaches can be used to access tissues outside of the liver. So really the li- delivery problem is prominent. And I'm also curious to see how scientists kind of looking at what shape has, has achieved and, and what COR and RX could similarly achieve, how they will leverage the existing enzymes that are present in human cells and use that as a basis to address a variety of different conditions. So I think, yeah, I think the future here is really exciting and I think it's, it's tough to, <laughs> it's, I think when you consider kind of the, the DNA versus RNA targeted approaches, a lot of the work in, in the world of RNA is sort of uh, in the earliest stages, but among the trials you mentioned, I think, for instance, let's talk about uh, shape in particular. So there are just a handful of mutations that's in, within Parkinson's that can be addressed using their technology. And this deal with Roche, I think, is centered around that, but to the simple idea that they can address these mutations in this relatively large patient, this very large patient population without any CRISPR proteins, even though the breadth is rather limited, I think the excitement around that is is really, really typifies the potential of repurposing enzymes in in cells to edit RNA.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense. And it's, yeah, it's just crazy when you think about, you know, what the market would be and and course, the main issue that we're all trying to solve, which is helping patients. So it's pretty incredible to think about the possibilities there. So a random question, which is, I love talking about AlphaVolt because it is you know, open source and free. And it also can help with understanding how proteins fold. And so I'm curious to know, do you think this is going to help at all for RNA editing? I think from a DNA level, it may but I don't think it will have significant impact. I'm curious if you think that will be sort of similar with RNA. Editing.
0: Right. I think, I can't remember if it was the, which version, whether it was DeepMind or, or the Fold tech, that was better at predicting protein complex formation. And I think this, you know, this, this general approach, I think when you consider any sort of intermolecular interaction between uh, an RNA or an RNA protein, I think this type of approach would be used to, Uh, custom design RNAs that interact with cellular proteins or vice-versa proteins that interact with cellular RNAs. So, to my knowledge, I think RNA hasn't been a a subject of major interest when it comes to the the training sets that these different uh, machine learning folding algorithms have been pointed at, but I can imagine really exciting ways to use this to build new ways to target RNA and come up with new ways to take RNA and target it to cellular materials to therapeutic effects. So, yeah, that was a really good out of left field question. I like it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Honestly, though, if you know me at all, um, Alfred is never out of left field for me because somehow I, I, it helps me sort of think about how companies are thinking. Because, I mean, based on some of our analyses, if you look at how companies are evolving, the companies that are using you know CRISPR, AI, next generation, sequencing, you know, and in AI, we kind of, you know, include AlphaFold. fold. They're really, their time to market improvement and their failure rate reduction is pretty remarkable. So I try to sort of contextualize that in the sense of thinking about, okay, well, if they're implementing some of these technologies, how does that impact sort of, you know, your rate of return, but also, you know, getting these therapies to patients quicker who actually need them. So I think that's really helpful. And maybe if, if we can just talk about sort of a forward thinking question you know where do you see RNA editing in it's infancy right now but really exciting so where do you see RNA editing in five to ten years and you know you can go as far as far as I with this
0: (laughs) right I think the world of RNA editing will benefit a lot from the momentum in the world of CRISPR so a lot of the problems that the world of CRISPR is experiencing are problems that the world of RNA editing is experiencing when I say problems I mean sort of technological idiosyncrasies that just need to be addressed on the path towards making products and human therapeutics. So that said, the, also the infrastructure, sort of intellectual infrastructure and the talent that's now in the world of DNA targeting CRISPR, a lot of it is starting to shift towards, really some of it's starting to shift towards RNA. So the result will be, I think, a lot of really, really sharp people showing up in this area and trying to build out the toolbox, the alphabet soup of, of Cas proteins uh, for RNA. And indeed, there's organizations that are doing just that, like Harbor Biotechnologies is one of them, and there's lots of academics who are doing similar similar stuff to identify new DNA and RNA targeting proteins. So, looking forward, I think there will be sort of a division between the diseases for RNA targeting technology and for DNA targeting technology. The delivery vectors will sort of dictate, to some degree, which diseases are treated in the next couple of years. When I say to some degree, I mean to a, to a great degree. The Kind of, one of the good things about AAV is that the delivery time frame, um, the durability of expression, so how long after the material is delivered will you end up with therapeutic activity. For AAV, it's actually very long, especially if you're targeting tissue that is not uh, dividing. So as you can imagine, as the cells divide, the therapeutic gets uh, diluted among the daughter cells. But in non-dividing cells, AAV uh, appears to persist for a long time, many years, and in some studies, more than 10 years running. So this is super important. For the RNA targeting gene therapy field, so I expect, because you can imagine, if we're not generating a permanent edit to DNA, as you are with a genome editing protein, you need to continuously alter the RNA content of a cell because mutated RNA is being generated all the time. So for that reason, the therapy needs to be around really indefinitely to treat the patient properly. So I think the RNA targeting field will really benefit from this broad use of AV and many of the diseases where there exist known AAV serotypes that target a certain tissue. We will find modalities that sort of fit into those existing delivery paradigms. So we've got a capsid, a viral capsid that can go to tissue X. There's kind of a menu of diseases with these different mutations present. I think over the next couple of years, we'll begin kind of filling filling the gap with finding modalities that we can package in those different vectors to kind of run down the list of as the run down the list of indications as the addressable mutations with current technology expand. So when you consider where things stand right now, really A I mutations appear to, so G to A mutations can be reversed using aar based approaches. I think many other sorts of mutations will likely be able to be addressed on the level of RNA. And, there are, and the advantages of targeting RNA, like avoiding permanent off-target edits, will be writ large, I think, in situations where the therapeutic must be delivered to a very large tissue volume, where, let's say, many of the cells in a certain tissue volume don't even express the gene they're editing. So there's really no reason to risk some off-target effects if you can avoid it in cells that do not even express the gene that you're targeting. So for that reason, I think that kind of safety advantage of RNA might become, targeting RNA, might become more prominent. And once the technology is available, it may be the way to go. Again, in large tissue volumes or systemic delivery or in other situations where maybe finely divided cell types in the brain need to be targeted, and whereas the other cell types don't need to be targeted. So I managed to avoid answering your question directly. <laughs> pretty effectively. So I think I'll just leave it there.
2: No, I, I actually was just thinking, I think you did such a great job. Cause like I mentioned, I like thinking about it as sort of some of its parts. And so thinking about the vector and the enzyme or not needed, no enzyme. And so I think you did a really good job by answering the question by kind of going through each of those and how they may or may not be affected. So I think that's, that's a really great way of phrasing it. So I appreciate that. I know we're up to the hour. So it went by so fast because this was so much fun, but um I could probably stay here and talk to you about RNA editing for a very long time, but that would probably be unfair to you. So <laughs> I'll let you get back to potentially curing through RNA editing, which is just such an exciting field. And I'll definitely be watching your progress on the sidelines and hope to catch up with you really soon. But for now, thank you so so much for your time. This was this was really great. I so appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thanks, me. Thanks for the incisive questions. And yeah, it's great chatting with you as always. Thanks a lot, Allie.